Chapter Two of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter Two, The Tasman District, Tasman District, Mount Cook, First Exploration of Murchison Glacier, First Ascent of Harper's Saddle, Other Climbs, Necessary Conditions the only locality in the southern alps which has been in any way opened up for tourists is the tasman or mount cook district which includes the four large glaciers at the head of the tasman river and nearly all the finest peaks in the alps the leading features of this district have already been so ably and thoroughly described by the rev w s green dr von lindenfeld and mr g e mannering that i shall not dwell on the description of the scenery but shall only give a short record of my own and others' work here, which has materially added to our topographical knowledge of the district, since von Lindenfeld made his exploration of the Tasman Glacier. Note. The High Alps of New Zealand, by Rev. W. S. Green, Macmillan. Der Tasman Gletscher und St. Ungeberg, by von Lindenfeld. With Axe and Rope in the New Zealand Alps, by G. E. Mannering, Longmans. The chief point of interest is Mount Cook. 12,349 feet. For some years past, an attempt has been made amongst those who climb in New Zealand to change the name of this peak to Aorangi, a Maori word. Some of those who write articles on their climbs are fond of saying Mount Cook, or to be correct, Aorangi, or some such expression, inferring that Mount Cook is not the correct name. I have always objected to the innovation, and have made inquiries in all directions, but can find no proof whatever that Aorangi was applied to the peak, or that it ever had a distinctive name amongst the Maoris. So far as I could learn from the Maoris of the west coast, who could see Mount Cook, and the other great peaks towering up within twenty miles, they had no name for any peak or range, except those lower hills on which they ventured. Again, the Maoris had a wholesome and deeply rooted fear of the mountains. None of the old west coast natives ever went far from the low country, so it can hardly have been necessary for them to have individual names for the great snowy range. On the east coast, the Maoris could have had little knowledge of this district, as it is so far inland, and most of the South Island natives lived near the sea beach, from which Mount Cook is only in one or two places visible, and can only be distinguished by persons well acquainted with the peak. It therefore appears that if any Maori name existed, it would be known amongst the west coast natives who could see Mount Cook every clear day within twenty miles of the sea at the mouth of Cook or Weheka River, while those natives who lived on the Grey River and those settled at Jackson's Bay in the far south would be able to see it from nearly every part of the seacoast, standing out in the most unmistakable manner. In 1865 I had a Maori, of whom more will be said, with me for two months, and a very good intelligent fellow he was. I asked him one day, what does Aorangi mean, Bill? To which he answered, It means a big white cloud. I said, I suppose that is why you call Mount Cook Aorangi? Oh no, Aorangi not mountain. Aorangi a big white cloud. Here? There, said Bill, pointing out sundry large fleecy clouds. I then pressed him more on the point, and told him he knew nothing about it, and that Aorangi was the name they had for Mount Cook. But he waxed quite indignant, saying, Tomori, he no named mountains, only where he go, to white man he name em. I afterwards made inquiries from other Maoris, and always had the same reply, 
that they had no name for the high mountains it is not a matter of much importance but it will be a pity to have the older name of mount cook superseded by a maori word which has only been applied to the peak during the present generation the name aurangi is no doubt a good one and if it is considered advisable there is no reason why it should not be adopted officially but it is wrong to state that it is the proper name for the peak mount cook is not on the main range but lies on a ridge which branches off in a southerly direction from a point a little south of mount tasman eleven thousand four hundred and seventy five feet note see appendix note two end of note this offshoot is about twelve miles long and includes some lower peaks of six thousand and seven thousand feet besides the three peaks of mount cook itself on the western side between it and the main chain which here after bending away to the west turns again and runs parallel to mount cook for a short distance the hooker glacier lies and on the eastern side the great tasman glacier passes along the foot receiving supplies from the peak the hooker glacier gives rise to a river of the same name which runs in a southeastern direction along the foot of the mount cook spur to join the tasman river some four or five miles below a mile from the outflow of the glacier the hooker stream passes sometimes along and sometimes under the terminal face of the muller glacier which winds in a northerly direction under mount sefton and the other peaks of the main range near the terminal face of the latter glacier the hermitage hotel was built in eighteen eighty five and from it parties of climbers are able to make a comfortable start on numerous expeditions to the north of mount tasman the main range continues in a northeasterly direction to mount ellie de beaumont ten thousand two hundred feet a distance of eleven or twelve miles after which it takes an abrupt turn to the east to the hochstetter dome nine thousand two hundred and fifty eight feet and thence again it gradually assumes a northeasterly direction past the godly district to the head of the rangatata and so on from a point a little east of the last named peak the magnificent multibrun range of rocky peaks branches off to the south running nearly parallel to the main range and mount cook and with them enclosing the great tasman glacier which takes its rise from the peaks of Ellie de Beaumont and Hochstetter Dome. Still further eastwards, another and longer divergent ridge, the Liebig Range, branches from the main chain, running for a few miles in a due easterly direction, and then, sweeping sharply round, continues for twenty miles or more in a southwesterly direction. Between this range and the Multibrun, the Murchison Glacier flows, having a saddle at its head, leading into the Tasman Glacier north of Mount Darwin. 9,715 feet. Another saddle over the main range into the Wimper Glacier on the west coast, and a third in near proximity over the Liebig Range to the Klassen Glacier, which lies at the head of the Godley River. The Murchison Glacier is the third in size of the New Zealand ice fields, and draws supplies chiefly from the Maltebrun Range. Between the latter range and the main range, the Tasman Glacier, 18 miles in length, flows receiving several large tributaries from the peaks of the Divide and Mount Cook. About six miles from the terminal face of the Tasman Glacier, at the inflow of the Ball Glacier, the government in 1891 built an iron hut, and formed a few tracks for the use of climbers, and from that date mountaineering may be said to have assumed a civilized form, for previously a start had to be made from the Hermitage Hotel, and camping necessaries had to be carried on our own shoulders over trackless moraines. 
since the building of the hut i have only been for two expeditions in this district and rough as the present arrangements are as compared with switzerland they are luxurious when contrasted with our experience before eighteen ninety one even now in the tasman our best-known district any expedition entails for one not accustomed to it a large amount of very hard work we have no guides and porters are difficult or almost impossible to get the few men who have gone in for systematic work have had to learn the art of mountaineering without help and necessarily at considerable risk consequently we can boast of three or four climbers who are almost first-class men never having climbed with guides and yet able to top some of our finest peaks alpine workers especially in a new country like new zealand may be divided broadly into two classes exploring climbers and climbers who wish only to top peaks of course many do a little of both but one class makes exploration its hobby while the other cares for climbing only and is not particular about the topography or geography of the country often adding very little to our knowledge of the mountains of the two classes i think the explorer does the most useful work true he gets little credit for the hardships endured because after many weeks of hard work he can often only prove which routes to avoid and someone learning this important point appears on the scene with all his predecessor's knowledge thus saving days of reconnoitring and completes the climber exploration on his return we hear the first man mentioned only as having failed at a certain place or having made such and such mistakes there being no acknowledgment of the benefit derived from those mistakes or of the time saved by making use of his experiences in another way too the first man has to take a second place he may in the course of his exploration bring information as to a likely pass the other makes the said pass and writes a glowing account of quote, first pass by so-and-so with no mention of the fact that mr explorer gave him the whole facts as to the route the result is that many who are better men with their pens than their axes gain great kudos while the really hard worker who has borne the brunt of the battle is unknown except to a few and has the misfortune of seeing the results of his work not only ignored but to a great extent appropriated by someone else in january eighteen ninety mr g e mannering and i made an expedition to this district originally with the intention of trying mount cook we formed our main camp on the site of green's fifth camp which was close to the point at which the bowl glacier joins the tasman some six miles above the terminal face the above-mentioned hut now stands on this site and has a horse track to it but in eighteen ninety no sort of track existed and we had to carry our heavy loads of from thirty to fifty pounds to the camp the route after reaching the terminal of the tasman glacier had to be taken along the bottom of the v-shaped valley formed on the left by the hillside and on the right by the large lateral moraine of the glacier in places this valley is broken or half filled up by large shingle fans from the hill and between these the bottom is filled with large boulders of ten feet or so in diameter which have fallen from the moraine or the hillside consequently our progress was painfully slow for we were always more or less in bad training at the commencement of our trip i remember that i used to think at the time that there could not possibly be any worse ground to travel over but my last two seasons work on the west coast rivers and glaciers have caused me to modify those ideals considerably yet from my knowledge of switzerland 
I can say without doubt that this district presents far greater difficulties on low ground than the former would present even before it had reached its present state of good tracks and huts. But as compared with some west coast valleys, it is easy country to travel over. From our main camp, we established a bivouac on the Hochstetter Spur, near the one used by Mr. Green in 1882, and from there intended to establish another on the lower snows of the Linda Glacier, which flows down from the northern slopes of Cook, between it and Mount Tasman. The weather looked threatening, and I did not at all care to risk so high a sleeping place, but after some discussion we went on and reached the Glacier Dome, a rounded peak, over which the route lay to the great ice plateau. While climbing the last rocks and pulling our loads up after us, one of the straps broke and the swag made a rapid descent for some seven hundred feet into a Berkshrund. This put an end to the plan of sleeping out on the Linda Glacier. Therefore, after reaching the great ice plateau, we made a return to the lower bivouac at 6,500 feet. The delay caused by the recovery of our lost load proved beneficial, for a howling northwest gale sprang up that night and made us most uncomfortable, but would have been almost fatal had it caught us at the proposed bivouac on the Linda Glacier, some 3,000 feet higher. At daylight next morning the gale was so bad that we continued the descent and retired to our main camp, having been so far successful that we could boast of being the first New Zealanders to reach the snow plateau and glacier dome. I had done a few climbs in Switzerland in 1887 and 1888, and had therefore some slight idea of the work of mountaineering, and was convinced that we had not yet had sufficient practice or experience to attempt such a difficult peak as Mount Cook. Consequently, Mannering, much against his wish, decided not to try the mountain again that year, unless we could make up a stronger party. This attempt was the only one I ever made on Mount Cook, but Mannering, with Mr. H. Dixon, again tried it the next season, and nearly succeeded in conquering it by the same route as that taken by Mr. Green in 1882. Note, quote, with axe and rope in the New Zealand Alps, end quote by Mr. G. E. Mannering, Longmans, end of note. Instead of returning to the Hermitage by the usual route, we made the first pass over the Cook Range, via a saddle at the head of the Ball Glacier, 7,426 feet above sea level. It was an easy day's climb, and led us into the Hooker Glacier about five and a half miles above the Hermitage, and has since become quite a favorite expedition for tourists, giving, as it does, good snow and ice work, combined with glorious views of the four great glaciers and the chief peaks surrounding them. Having replenished our supplies, and being joined by Mr. H. M. Hamilton, a tourist whom we met at the hotel, we returned on the ninth January to our main camp. It was decided to give up the idea of climbing Cook, and to spend the remainder of our holiday in exploring the Murchison Valley, which joins the Tasman Valley, just opposite our camp across the glacier. Though the terminal face of the Murchison Glacier has been seen for four miles distance from the lower portion of the Tasman Glacier, it had been up to that date entirely unexplored, and was supposed to take its rise from the southern slopes of Mount Darwin. We had no reason to suppose that this was not the case, but wished to make a personal exploration of the valley. Our plan was to proceed up the Murchison to the head, and cross the Maltebrun Range between Mount Maltebrun 10,421 feet, and Mount Darwin, 9,715 feet, 
by the saddle which was supposed to be the head of the glacier, and returned down the Tasman to our camp. We expected to be able to do this in one day, but on second thoughts decided to take a blanket and a day's provisions. Starting on January 10th at 9 a.m., with light loads of about 30 pounds, and crossing the Tasman, a distance of two and a half miles, in two hours we found ourselves in the riverbed of the Murchison, which, after the bad surface moraine of the Tasman, proved good travelling. Every step opened up new glaciers and peaks, and we wasted some valuable time in deciding whether these peaks were unnamed or only new views of old friends, with the result that it was 3.30 before we reached the glacier. The ice was covered with debris even worse than the Tasman Glacier. It is difficult to give an adequate idea of these terrible moraines. They must be seen by anyone wishing to realize their extent and size. Imagine loose boulders of all shapes and sizes, up to ten or fifteen feet square, thrown into heaps and hummocks a hundred feet high, and in hopeless confusion, extending for miles, and a faint idea of what we had to travel over may be formed. With this sort of traveling, it may be supposed that progress was slow, and at five p.m. we had only gone a mile up the glacier. Here a tributary came in from the Malta Run Range, near which was some scrub for firewood, so we took advantage of such a convenient spot and stopped for the night. So far nothing had happened to make us doubt that we should be able to cross the saddle at the head of the glacier and reach the Ball Glacier camp the next day. Therefore we did not economize our food that evening or the next morning at our 5 a.m. breakfast. Two miles above our camp, the glacier appeared to come from the left, off the Malta Brun Range, but on reaching the spot and ascending a rise in the ice, we discovered that it was only a tributary stream, and the main glacier lay in front of us, stretching out for miles, and evidently coming from the northern side of Darwin instead of the southern slopes. A short council of war, as to the advisability of continuing an expedition which must involve another night and day away from camp, with only enough food for one meal left, ended in our deciding to do or die. Consequently, we made for the white ice now just ahead of us, and began to move more easily and quickly. At one thirty p.m. we saw to our joy a saddle of some 7,400 feet on our left front, which appeared to lead over the Malta Brun Range to the Tasman Glacier, at the head of a large tributary, the main glacier apparently coming from a saddle a mile or two further to the north. After some rather difficult work amongst snow-covered crevasses, and in a thick mist, we arrived on our saddle at 4.30 p.m. In a short time the fog lifted, and we were fairly puzzled to know where we had got to. No Tasman was in sight, but far below us an unknown glacier swept away to our right hand instead of to our left, as we had anticipated. Suddenly Mannering saw the Hochstetter Dome, which he had ascended the previous season, and then it all became evident. Instead of being on a pass over the Maltebrun Range, we had ascended a spur round which the Murchison Glacier came, and the ice below us was the head of that glacier, sweeping down to the right, previous to turning at right angles round the spur on which we were. Some distance to our left we could see a saddle leading into the Tasman hopelessly out of our reach, and in front, across the head of the Murchison, another saddle over the main range, evidently leading into the Wimper Glacier, which lies at the head of a branch of the Wataroa River on the west coast. Our pass, therefore, only led us into the neve of the glacier 
on which we had been for the last two days. Hamilton was somewhat out of training, and wanted to rest badly, so we took an hour's spell and made a rough map. Some time after 5.30 p.m. we began to retrace our steps, having left a record of the ascent of Starvation Saddle in a cairn. At 8 p.m. we found a fair bivouac, and supperless rolled ourselves in our blankets, and were soon in the land of Nod. At daybreak, after a miserably small meal, which exhausted our supplies, we moved off, and in eight hours reached the head camp, I having gone ahead to cook a meal for the others, who arrived an hour later. The result of this expedition was topographically important. It proved that the Murchison was a large glacier, as far as was then known, the second in size in New Zealand. Also, that instead of coming from Darwin's southern slopes, it came from the main range at a point two miles north of that peak, which is, as I have already explained, on the Multiprun Range, an offshoot of the Divide. Therefore, the Murchison with a Tasman encloses the Multiprun Range, like a great island in a sea of ice. The government had this glacier surveyed during the next season and proved our topographical conclusions to be correct, and also showed that our sketch map was practically right in all its features. In the early part of the next season, December 1890, I formed a party consisting of Messrs. R. Blackiston, W. Beadle, and myself. But owing to some terribly bad weather and heavy snow, we did nothing till January, except twice reach the Bowl Glacier, and on each occasion being driven back by terrific storms. The season was notable for one or two things only, but all of them important. In that year, Mr. Broderick, government surveyor, completed the survey of the district, and Mannering nearly succeeded in ascending Mount Cook in company with Mr. Dixon, a most plucky attempt. And lastly, our Blackiston and I made the first complete traverse of the Hooker Glacier, and ascent of the saddle at its head, since called Harper Saddle, 8,580 feet. The upper basin of this glacier had never been visited, though two or three attempts had been made to reach it, rendered unsuccessful by the enormous crevasses about five miles up the glacier. The previous three weeks' bad weather and heavy snow, however, had so covered the ice that I decided to make the ascent. On December 29th, Blackiston and I left the Hermitage with a light camp, which we pitched some two miles above the terminal face on the western side of the glacier. On the morning of the 30th, an unfortunately late start was made at 6.30, and after an hour or so on the lateral moraine, we took to the snow-covered ice, which rose in a succession of ice-falls, on which the snow was disagreeably soft. Thanks to the heavy fall, we were able to cross all the broken ice, but not without considerable care, as some of the crevasses were of great width. Eight hours floundering above our knees, in soft snow, brought us to the foot of the saddle, which lay at the top of an ice wall of 250 feet, rising very steeply to within 60 feet of the top. A large bergschrund skirted the foot of this ice slope, and delayed us a good deal, as it was not easily negotiated. I took the lead, for Blackiston was new to ice work, and after cutting some one hundred and twenty steps, we stood on the saddle. I have never experienced in any other climb such difficulty in the way of step-cutting. For the first one hundred and eighty feet, the slope was so steep that I had to lean my chest against the ice while cutting the next steps, and could see Blackiston below me by looking between my feet. In New Zealand, there is the same trouble with fog as in Switzerland. That is to say, it is very rare that a clear view can be obtained over the west coast, 
after ten a m because a low dense bank of fog drifts in from the sea and fills the valleys only allowing of six thousand feet and upwards to be seen this is i imagine very much like the fog so often seen on the italian side of the alps the saddle led into the la perouse glacier at the head of the cook river on the west coast but we could see nothing of the valley owing to the fog which lay five hundred feet or so below us and which though we tried to descend prevented our completing a transalpine pass the day had been intensely hot which made it highly probable that several snow bridges would be gone and new crevasses exposed hence it was necessary to waste as little time as possible and to reach them before dusk at three thirty after leaving a record of the ascent we began to descend blackest and going first and both descending backwards the steadiness of my companion on this ice slope is beyond praise considering that this was his first expedition on ice or snow unfortunately also it was his last for he has never been free to climb since and we have lost a promising mountaineer opposite baker's saddle which lies south of mount stokes and leads into the copeland river on the west coast we found the crevasses very much exposed and bridges gone no less than ten had appeared which were invisible in the morning one crevasse we crossed on the snow by crawling was of great breadth i believe it was fully twenty-five feet wide so large and numerous are these that except early in the season i feel convinced a route up the hooker would be a most difficult thing to find at seven p m we regained our camp and next day in heavy rain retraced our steps to the hotel fearfully burnt and sore from the glare on the fresh snow this climb was topographically of importance and had we had a clear view over the west coast we could have answered some interesting questions which however i was able to decide two or three years later as will be seen in a future chapter the actual result was that the map of the hooker was proved incorrect as regards the head basin and the position of mount cook which had been placed on the main range as a matter of fact it is on the eastern side and sends no drainage onto the west coast at all mount cook branches off at mount dampier eleven thousand three hundred and twenty three feet which drops on one side into the linda glacier on another into the head basin of the hooker while its third side falls precipitously into the la perouse glacier on the west coast from dampier the main range goes to mount hicks or st david's dome ten thousand four hundred and ten feet and thence past harper's saddle eight thousand five hundred and eighty feet to stokes ten thousand one hundred and one feet whence it bends away sharply southwards to sefton ten thousand three hundred and fifty nine feet and mount burns eight thousand nine hundred and eighty four feet which lies at the head of the muller glacier though our climb finally settled the position of mount cook as being off the main range it is only fair to say that mr roberts of the westland survey department had practically decided the point and only wanted to have it confirmed by more sure evidence when sitting on the saddle i planned a route up mount cook which seemed to be far easier and more direct than that followed by mr green but unfortunately i never had an opportunity of attempting it however mr fife who also considered it the best route followed it when he made the first ascent of the peak on christmas day eighteen ninety four later on in the same season namely february eighteen ninety one Mr. P. H. Johnson and I made another expedition to this district, intending to climb De La Beche, 9,815 feet, and the Minarets, 10,058 feet, 
part of the same mountain. Unfortunately, my companion fell ill, and we did nothing for a week or more, and then only made two small climbs, namely, a pass over the Maltebrun range, the first climb done on that range, and an attempt at Mount Seely, from which we were driven by a terrific northwest gale when near the top. The following summer I made three attempts at Mount de la Beche, but had the most extraordinary bad luck. The first attempt was in company with M. H. Hamilton, and we reached a point close under the main peak, some nine thousand feet above sea level, when my companion became helpless owing to sickness. I then returned and obtained Jack Adamson from the Hermitage, and with him reached the same point in such a gale of wind that we could not stand. And two days later we again went for the peak, when my mate was seized with a cramp in the stomach, which forced us to return at 8 a.m., within 900 feet of the summit. The only fact worth recording with regard to these climbs is that I obtained the first photographs ever taken overlooking the main range. I have the somewhat melancholy satisfaction of knowing that my route, which lay up the Rudolph Glacier and up the rock face of the peak, was the correct one. Fife, who made the first ascent of this mountain later, wrote and told me he had followed my route, and it presented no real difficulty. Mount de la Beche is one of our most beautiful peaks, and stands between the Tasman Glacier and the Kronprinz Rudolf Glacier, a large tributary flowing into the main glacier some twelve miles up. At the point where these two ice streams join, a deep, triangular hollow is found, bounded on two sides by the high lateral moraines of the two glaciers, and on the third by de la Beche. This area is filled with large masses of rock, and under one, Adamson and I built a first-rate shelter, which is really as good as a hut, forming a convenient point from which to ascend fifteen or twenty of our highest peaks. For a really successful expedition in this district, a party should be composed of four men who are willing to do a considerable amount of rough work and ready to carry their own loads. They must also have plenty of time at their command, as nearly all our old failures are due to want of time, which prevented our waiting for good opportunities and compelled us to attempt all sorts of difficult expeditions in the face of doubtful weather. There are only two parties who have done any extended work in this district in one season, and both owe their success to having plenty of time at their disposal. Those of us who used to try and climb with only a short holiday always prophesied success to the first man who could spend a month or two at the Hermitage, and that prophecy turned out to be true. In 1893-1894 season, Fife spent a considerable time in the district, and could afford to wait for his weather. Consequently, he made the first ascents of three or four of our best peaks. Again, in 1894 to 1895 season, Mr. Fitzgerald, with his Swiss guide Zurbriggen, had a successful season, making several ascents, and owing his success as much to the fact that he could await fine weather and good opportunities as to the fact that he had Zurbriggen to guide him. Fife's climbs were, of course, guideless, and considering that he is, like all of us, a self-taught man, they are greatly to his credit. In fact, so far as peaks are concerned, his record exceeds that of anyone who has climbed in New Zealand for bona fide merit. End of chapter 2